University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Well, we are now in our third week of our series entitled Signs for Life, where we're examining what are known as the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And a few weeks ago, John Parks took us through a bit of John chapter 2, noting some of the ways in which signs are not so much about themselves, but point to other more important things. Last week, Tanya took us through the story of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And we heard how Jesus is the life of the party, always wanting ever more abundance for us in our lives, even if we aren't aware of it or can see it. Today we're in chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, looking at a story that's often called the healing of an official's son, the second sign of Jesus. And there's a lot that we could say about these passages of signs and wonders, about our passage today, but sometimes I think we might just need to keep things simple. And so this morning's reminder is a simple one, as we've heard through song and through prayer this morning. That reminder is to trust. There's great power in trusting when outcomes are not certain. As I read this story together for us, uh, I'll clarify a couple words that we'll come back to. But I invite you to hear this story from John 4, 43 through 54. When the two days were over, he went from that place to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in the prophet's own country. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, since they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. And then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. There was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he had heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then Jesus said to him, unless you, you all, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man believed, trusted the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. And as he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed, trusted, along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. 
Well, if you're like me, it's helpful to have some idea of the distances and the geography from stories like this. Maybe I'm a little bit of a nerd with maps and whatnot, but it's actually quite important in this story. We have five places named, generally speaking. There's Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, Cana, and Capernaum. Judea and Galilee, if you're not familiar, were regions in Israel about 120 miles apart. Jerusalem is a city in the south of the Judea region. The festival, by the way, that Jesus mentions, or that is mentioned in this passage by John, was the event when Jesus, uh, earlier in the gospel, drives the money changers out of the temple. The Galileans had traveled down to Jerusalem a couple days as was customary for various festivals in the holy city. And so they'd been there to witness this, along with other many miraculous signs that Jesus did, as the text says. But in the Galilee region, up north, we find Cana and Capernaum. Capernaum sits on the Sea of Galilee, it's a coastal town right on the water, and Cana, up in the hills a little way, about 20 miles. If you need some further context for this, um, maybe we could put those images up. I don't know how uh, interested in maps you are, but this is uh, the Galilee region. You see Cana up, or uh, sorry, Capernaum up near the sea, and Cana up in the hills a little way, about 20 miles, about an eight-hour walk if you were going to walk on foot. If you need some further context for this, though, it would be surprisingly almost exactly the same distance, if you go to the next slide, from Baton Rouge to Watson, up north of Denham Springs. And you might imagine, of course, that in the ancient world there was no I-10 or any vehicles, and so you would walk. And it would take you about seven or eight hours, one way. Now, this geography helps us see, I think, a couple of ways in which this royal official shows a great amount of trust in this dire situation with his son, without the luxury of certainty yet from signs or wonders. The text says that this man heard Jesus had come back to his region and that he was in Cana. Jesus was in Cana. Well, this man was over in Capernaum when he heard this. To put it in our context, again, it's as if Jesus had come to Baton Rouge. This man was way up in the country in Watson. And so when the text tells us that the man went and begged Jesus to come down, it wasn't just a quick walk up the street. He walked eight hours to Canaan, not knowing if he would find Jesus, not knowing whether Jesus would even still be there when he arrived, not knowing what the result of a conversation with Jesus would be if he did. But the man was desperate. His son was ill, and he needed help. Well, as the story says, the official does, in fact, get a conversation with Jesus. And he begs Jesus to come back to Capernaum with him, to heal his son. Jesus' response, and I think we can be honest about this. This is often the case in the Gospels. can sometimes be cryptic, maybe a bit confusing, maybe even a little frustrating. Jesus doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. 
It's almost as if his mind is elsewhere on other things. And he says, in the plural, by the way, unless you all see signs and wonders, you won't believe. He's responding to the official, but he's not really talking to him. He's sort of talking to everybody else. And I love the man's response. Sir, just please come down before my little boy dies. I don't know what you're getting at with this belief and all the signs business, but I need help. In a way, I see a lot of faith through this man's vulnerability. Some trust. And I don't think Jesus is necessarily rebuking him for doing anything wrong. He does heal his son after all. And maybe while our primary challenge today might be to reflect on ways that we could trust more, I'll say more about that in a minute, it might also be that we could reflect on putting ourselves in Jesus' shoes in such a scenario when we encounter people in great need. Perhaps another challenge for us might be to provide space for others to voice their vulnerability without being shut down or rebuked or cast off. Another challenge for another day but maybe something to keep in mind. We do need to understand something about belief, though. Remember, this is all written in not English. Does anybody know what language this was written in? You can call it out. Greek. Yeah, ancient, ancient, ancient Greek. And there's this word in ancient Greek, pistis. You may have heard this before, which often gets translated as belief. And for the life of me, I can't understand why it's still often translated this way in our Bibles in English. Because just about every commentary or Bible that you read will have a note somewhere indicating that this is the word pistis and that it really means trust. Or something to that effect. I don't have a PhD in Bible translation, so I will yield to the experts. But nonetheless, our modern spirituality has shifted towards an intellectual assent to a set of ideas, believing a certain set of things in our minds as the most important thing. As if all we needed to say was, yep, I believe that, check it off the list, and we just move on as if nothing was any different with our lives. That's not what John or any writer in the New Testament wants us to think about. Belief is important, but active trust is what really matters. This official didn't just believe that Jesus might heal his son, he put that belief into action by risking something, walking eight hours to find out if it would be true. He trusted Jesus by taking him at his word and walking eight hours back without any visible sign yet that his son would be okay. Trust requires something of us much more than just believing. Just over 160 years ago, on June 30th, 1859, a tightrope walker who went by the stage name Charles Blondin walked across Niagara Falls. I don't know if you're familiar with this story. His rope stretched 1,100 feet across the water and 160 feet above the surface, falling meant death. But he was an entertainer at heart, so he promoted this feat in the 
the weeks leading up to it as a big event. And on June 30th, hundreds of people showed up to watch. Some, I imagine, wanted to see a spectacle, just a fun outing for them. Others perhaps wanted to support him in his daring feat, and I imagine there was probably a fair amount of betting going on. But like the showman he was, Charles hopped on the rope and he wobbled a little bit, giving everyone a scare, making them think that he was a fool for even attempting this. But he was much more skilled than he let on, and he made it across, and he won the crowd over. He had made them believe in his strange and unique abilities. And everyone cheered, and much to their surprise, he got on the rope again. This time, going back the other direction without his pole to help him balance. And he made it across just the same. Well, then he decided to go a third time, and he took a wheelbarrow with him, balancing the wheelbarrow and himself behind it. No problems at all. And the crowd cheered even louder. What the crowd didn't know, though, was that he was leading up to his final act, which would require a volunteer. He had convinced the crowd to believe in him and his abilities, but when he asked for someone to get in the wheelbarrow for his final attempt, to none of our surprise, no one spoke up. Crickets. Well, eventually, legend says, his manager, trying to save face for both of them, reluctantly hopped in and went across the tightrope with him. They made it. They were fine. Now, I'm well convinced that some of the details in this story have been embellished over the years. But nonetheless, it illustrates a very important point for us. This difference between belief and trust is hugely significant for our understanding of the Gospels and our story today. Again, when we read the word belief, most of the time it's this Greek word pistis, which means an active trust. Charles Blondin's fans believed in him. They cheered him on, but none of them trusted him with their lives. None were willing to put themselves out there to test the limits of their belief. Jesus says in our story, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, you won't trust. He seems to lament the fact that there's a breakdown in people's ability to trust, to step forward without showy, flashy signs, which, as we've seen over the last few weeks in this series, are never really the main point anyway. You may be familiar with a very popular writer and speaker named Brene Brown. She does a lot of work in uh, trust and courage and issues of shame. She wrote an article a while back when she borrowed a definition of trust from another scholar. She says in the article that trust is choosing to make something important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. It's choosing to make something that's important to you vulnerable to the actions of someone else. In other words, trust means letting go of control. It means accepting that we won't always be able to see clearly, 
and that we cannot always predict the outcome. In fact, we rarely can. And so if we are tying ourselves and our action to some myth of certainty, some need for evidence or visible signs, I don't know that any of us will ever take steps forward in life. To live life in this world means to trust in a whole lot of things. You likely drove here in a car this morning, trusting that the steering wheel wasn't just going to fall off. You're sitting in a pew or a chair or a sofa right now, trusting that the legs don't come out from under you. And sure, your car was tested endlessly before it went to market to make sure it was safe, likely having passed many, many tests of reliability. But that threshold for reliability certainly wasn't 100%. It's just an incredibly human and real thing to trust. To know that things might not go the way you plan and still move forward anyway. Why not apply that, that trust, to things of deeper significance as well? Why not trust our lives to the work and ministry of Jesus, to building God's kingdom on earth? Even though we may not know how it ends or be able to see exactly how things play out, even if we might not know exactly what the right solutions are to the problems we face, or have 100% confidence in the path forward. Perhaps there are ways right now that God is calling you to take a step forward, to trust a little bit more. Maybe it's something as simple as getting involved in the ministry we are doing here at UBC. Why not show up next Sunday, for instance, and help in our kids club? Tanya needs a little bit of help, by the way, shameless plug. Or on Thursday nights at English Conversation, another shameless plug. Or any other ministry or good work that you might be called to in our community. Why not show up and trust that God will guide you and empower you? And that you have a church community who supports you. Perhaps there's another area of your life right now where you're wrestling with a decision or struggling to take the next step, waiting for some miraculous sign to give you absolute certainty before you make a move. You might be waiting a while. Could it be instead that what's required of you right now is to trust, to make a move or take a step, even if you don't know for sure how it will all play out? I don't know exactly what that means for you. For the royal official in our story today, it looked like walking eight hours, having absolutely no idea if it would pay off, wondering the whole way if anything had actually changed on the way back. Jesus says to the people in our story, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe, you won't trust. And I hope that all of us hear that not as a chastisement, but as a challenge. In what way do you need to let go of certainty, to let go of control, and take a step forward this week?
This is a real challenge that Jesus is giving us, but it's also really good news when you think about it. It means that you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to know exactly how your steps will land. You can let go of the need to control every scenario in your life, to prove every outcome before you make a move. The good news, the gospel of Jesus, is that there is a God who is always at work for good, whether or not you see it, regardless of the presence or absence of flashy big signs and miracles. I'm reminded, in a way, of the great mystic Julian of Norwich, who also lived during a pandemic, by the way, who famously said, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Perhaps we just need that simple reminder to trust in the power and good work of Jesus among us. That we can be confident there is a loving, trustworthy God to guide us along the way. For our time of reflection this morning, we enter into communion together. And as we do, I invite you to continue thinking about trust. How is God calling you to trust a little bit more this week? If you don't have a communion set, you can raise your hand and we have a couple folks who will bring you one.